Hello, this is Monocle Reads. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is the Iranian-born, London-based journalist and author Farah Nayeri. She regularly writes on culture for the New York Times, and she's the host of the podcast Culture Blast, which features prominent personalities from across the world of culture. Her latest book is Takedown, Art and Power in the Digital Age. Farah, welcome to Monocle Reads. Thank you, Georgina, for the invitation. It's lovely to have you here. And this is a really, really important book, which I think really shines a light on some of the issues that we need to be looking at right now. Before we get on to it, <laughs> I really want to talk about your, your background, because, of course, you're originally from Iran and you moved around various places as a child. Give us a flavour of that. I mean, I had a diplomatic dad, so that, that explains the moving around. I was actually born in London. <laughs> and left very, you know, very young. I was a toddler. We went back to Iran, and then over the years there were postings in Morocco and in Egypt, so I got to live there as well as Iran before the revolution in 1978-79. And um, after that, we sort of moved to France because there were three of us daughters and, you know, for schooling reasons and everything. So that's where my family settled in Paris, where they still are. I studied and, and then became a journalist, and most of my early journalism career was spent in Paris. And then and then I moved to Rome, uh, where I lived for three years, uh, happily, I must say. And then from there, I moved to London, where I now live. Although, and you were bureau chief for Bloomberg in Rome. Yes, I was, yeah. I mean, Bloomberg didn't have a, a bureau in Rome when... Um, when they sent me down there, they had a, a quite a strong bureau in Milan. And so they said they knew I, I, had, I kind of spoke Italian. I sort of was self-taught and I, and I spoke some Italian. They said, do you want to go to Rome? And I didn't have to think about it very long to, <laughs> to say yes. Yeah. And, uh, and I ended up also luckily being a tenant in, a, in an extraordinary building, uh, the Palazzo Doria Pamfili, oh. which is so large that they have many, um, turned it into many flats and apartments that they rent out to people. And I was one of those lucky people. And I mean, you've you've got this this wonderful kind of merging of of a political and an artistic brain. So, for instance, I mean, you you wrote political op eds for the Wall Street Journal, but you also did exhibition reviews. Yes, I mean, um, as a journalist, when I started out, I was a reporter for Time Magazine. That was my first gig, as it were. And um, for Time Magazine, I was covering you know general news. And covering politics quite a lot. You know, I was a young cub, but I was going along to election rallies and, and uh, you know, rallies by uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen and, and Mitterrand and, you know, all of that. And uh, just also writing about um, politics, French politics, but also French foreign policy, writing a lot about um, world affairs, Islamic fundamentalism, Algeria, you know, all of these things. So, so yeah, I mean, I was actually do have political training. I, I studied international relations originally. And so, yeah, but, but I'm kind of artistically inclined as a, as a person because I started playing piano when I was about five and a half and I studied it for about 20 years and it nearly became a career. So, and I'm also a writer and writing is not something, you know, that I just do for journalism. Writing is also, you know, something that I, um, yeah, that, that, that springs out of me, I guess. And so there has always been this sort of artistic stroke cultural bent 
as well as a, a great interest and study of politics. And I also, I think the the attraction that I have for politics is very much to do with my father. Um, I um, engaged in a lot of father worship when I was a, a child and probably still do. Uh, I lost him two years ago, but um, the worship carries on. And uh, and he was, you know, he was a great Iranian diplomat. Mm-hmm. Um, and he he was a, he was a great writer and and also a fine speaker. And I I just you know he, yeah you know you kind of look up to your parents and you sort of like in a way want to do what they do. And I decided when I was ten or eleven I wanted to be a journalist which wasn't quite what he was doing, but which allowed me also to come into contact with statesmen and, you know, politicians and personalities. And, uh, yeah, so that's where that comes from. Mm. Well, of course, both of those, the, the cultural and the political, come together perfectly in this book, Take Down Art and Power in the Digital Age. Now, every chapter goes through multiple examples of events, artists and works of art that are relevant to the chapter subject. It's mixed in with expert opinions and, of course, your own musings on everything. So I wonder, perhaps we'll start with Gauguin, because he was really the inspiration for this book. Yes, Gauguin was instrumental uh, in the birth of this book. What happened was in 2017, the Harvey Weinstein scandal happened. Hashtag Me Too really erupted on a global scale. And I went in to an art gallery to interview Kehinde Wiley, great African-American painter and artist for the New York Times. And I was speaking to him and I said, so what's, what are you doing next? And Kehinde was being a bit coy and he said, OK, I'll tell you. I'm going to go to, to Tahiti because I love Gauguin and I just absolutely adore his painting. But I find him creepy as, and then he used an expletive starting with the word F. And I said, OK. And then he said, yeah, I want to go down there and sort of look at Gauguin again using a different sort of 21st century perspective. And that kind of really sank into my head because being Europe-based and being European trained, having lived in Paris and Rome and and London, I wasn't really thinking along the lines of revisiting the art of the past or even the the art of the present through contemporary eyes. And um, that kind of got me thinking. It was sort of like a little worm that sort of went into my head. And then this Gauguin portraits show came up at National Gallery, and I went to my editor and said, I wonder how the, the National Gallery is going to handle Gauguin because, of course, as we all know, Gauguin, you know, when he moved to Tahiti, he lived with 13- and 14-year-old girls, Tahitian girls, and he married them according to the local custom, even though he was already married in Europe to Met Gauguin and had five children. So there was something a bit problematic going mm. on, mm. And, uh, and exhibitions of Gauguin previously hadn't handled it or really addressed it. I got to the National Gallery and I and I was surprised to see on the introductory big wall text these lines about how Gauguin had sexual relations with 13, 14-year-old girls. And he, quote unquote, married a few of them and had and fathered children. And so the National Gallery very evidently was addressing the elephant in the room, which is, you know, Gauguin's, well, engagement with underage mm-hmm. girls. And, and so that would happen after that. Just to, And the story is that I was approached by a very smart young New York agent by the name of Ross Harris. And Ross said, you know, would you like to write a book sort of like re-examining art history and looking at 
yeah, art through a 21st century lens and I said yes. Mm. I mean, what's extraordinary here is that the National Gallery did decide to go ahead with the exhibition because what we're seeing more and more in, in recent years is actually things like that being absolutely just shut down. So I wonder if we could look perhaps at the history of censorship and exclusion of art. Well, censorship and exclusion of art has a very, very long history. I mean, you know, you have to go all the way back to the days of Byzantine excuse me, pre-Byzantine sort of iconoclasm in early Christian tradition. I mean, images and icons have been attacked and blown up and smashed and and bashed forever, forever and a day, really. You know, just think of Savonarola in Florence, who, who created this huge bonfire on which it is said that Botticelli tossed a few of his paintings, you know, because, you know, painting and imagery was uh, akin to sin. Moving forward, you just think of Hitler and the whole degenerate at art and and his destruction or his, you know, yeah, I mean, I think there was obviously destruction of some works of art under Hitler and then Stalin and and on and on, you know, uh, for centuries, centuries and even millennia, I would say, people in power look to basically censor art and destroy it and take it down. And what my book explains is that Nowadays, with democracy in the West, we no longer have dictators and popes and, you know, monks and people like that just trying to burn things down. But we do have ordinary folks like ordinary citizens like you and I who can go on social media, start a campaign with a hashtag and attack something or go and demonstrate in front of it or call for its destruction or actually lead to its destruction, as has happened recently. Yeah, absolutely. The whole significance of social media, of citizen activists. Yeah. Um, but should should artists be cancelled because of their backstory? I mean, can we appreciate great works and not the person that created them? I think definitely yes. I mean, first of all, the book doesn't really use the, the term cancellation very often because the term cancellation is sort of like, it's a sort of biased term. Mm-hmm. It's very uh, loaded, isn't it's it? It's quite loaded. And I think that what, what I explain in the book is that art really did need to open up. I mean, art was very predominantly white and male forever forever. I mean, we're only now starting to see solo shows of extraordinary female artists. They never had these big solo shows before. Some of them are in their 80s and 90s, and some of them are long dead. I mean, I just was in Paris, and I went to see an exhibition of Joan Mitchell at the Fondation Vito in Paris, and she was paired with Monet. And this woman was an abstract expressionist. I found her paintings, which I had never seen in such great quantity, to be absolutely intoxicating. I was literally swooning, and this woman's art was just as good in my evaluation, but also others, as Jackson Pollock's. Mm -hmm. And yet you bring up her name, and people say, who? Yeah. Do you think that that's been deliberate through the ages? Have women been deliberately suppressed as artists or have they just not had the opportunity to practice art? I think it's been both, to be honest. I think uh, we have been living in patriarchal societies, even in the West, up until very recently. And I think that women, for a long time, of course, as we all know, you know, their primary duty was to find a husband. And that was the only way that you could actually accede to any, to comfort or wealth or 
anything really, and you had to have children. So those were kind of obligations, and they were almost the uh, not almost they were the only way for women to accede to anything. And there were many many women across the ages who were artists, mm. but where were they going to practice their art? They didn't have an atelier, and so they had husbands who were artists, and oftentimes they would be in the atelier doing, helping the the husband, and possibly even doing some of those works, mm. but never getting credit for them. So I think it's a combination of both. I think it really is also men in a variety of positions, whether it's spouses or or people in power, just really making sure that just keeping women silent. And of course, one way they were silent and very, very still was as artist models. And that brings us on to, to the idea of, of the male gaze, the high visibility of female nudes in art and really the, the question of, of consent and exploitation. Yes. Well, I mean, if we go and visit some of the greatest museums of the world, if you go to the Louvre or even National Gallery or the Metropolitan Museum, and you look at some of the collections that they have pre, I would say, pre-1900, but even pre-1945, there is just such a predominance of women, right? But they're naked women. (laughs) I mean, that's where women are absolutely dominant, is in, in the nude, and, uh, you know, there was this group in the late 80s, I think, um, called the Gorilla Girls who went around New York putting up posters, counting up the number of nudes in the Metropolitan Museum. And there was like a horrendously high number. And then it's just how many works by women and, uh, you know, in the single digits. Mm. So there have been a lot of naked models in art history. And as you say, you know, it raises the question, how did this sometimes underage woman, young woman or young girl, find herself to be naked in this artist's studio? What was the before and the after? How did this this girl get there? Mm. And what kind of, let's say, power dynamics went into that? I mean, it is very likely that, you know, these men were taking advantage of these girls in some way, shape or form. You look specifically, actually, at Manet's Déjeuner sur l'herbe. Tell us what you think when you look at that painting. Well, I've been looking at that painting forever and going to Orsay, the Musée d'Orsay, and, and and gazing at it. And again, I have this very kind of European, or I had this very kind of European education where you just accepted these artworks as being great. And it is an absolutely great work of art. And then I actually watched this extraordinary comedy show by Hannah Gatsby, Nanette. And she's actually an art historian by training. I mean, she studied art history. And what Hannah says is, you know, she brings up Déjeuner sur l'herbe or she brings up, you know, paintings of naked figures and naked nymphs. And and she says, oh, they just happen to be in the nude here, you know, gallivanting, (laughs) you know. And I sort of then it kind of had me, she got me looking at Déjeuner sur l'herbe in a different way. They're fully clothed men. It's a picnic. They're all wearing, they're so clothed, they're still in their coattails. And I think one of them or both of them are still wearing top hats. And then they're sitting there with this naked woman. The woman is stark naked and they're having a picnic. And then in the background, you see more sort of women semi-naked or naked. And so you're just thinking, you know, seeing the world through, through Hannah's eyes, sort of thinking, why is this woman naked and why are these men fully clothed? And is she, you know, for dessert? Yes, exactly. That's what I put in the book, you know, is she the dessert? Yeah, it's quite extraordinary. So talking about marginalisation in art, of course, the whole Black Lives Matter has shone a spotlight on the fact that there's very little racial diversity, certainly within the Western canon. 
Absolutely. That's another issue with the Western canon is that up until again very recently, when you went to the major museums of the West, including MoMA, you would not see many women. There were hardly any women in the kind of trajectory in the sort of the lineup at MoMA, shall we say. Mm. You had modernism and futurism and this ism and that ism, and there weren't many women included in those let's say, periods of art. And so therefore, there were no women in the whole trajectory or the story of art as told by by MoMA or by people like Ernst Gombrich mm-hmm. in his story of art. And so what's happened since, I would say, and I argue in the book, since 2017 and the Harvey Weinstein scandal and hashtag Me Too, and since the death of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, is that these great, huge social movements have forced everyone in every walk of life to rethink, including the art museum world. So my book, you know, it might seem like a sort of book for geeks and it has the the word art in it and people say, oh, I know nothing about art. It's actually a book about everyday life Mm. and society and politics and how, how our mentalities across the board have shifted and how that's affected what we see in museums and galleries. And do you think that that is commercially driven or is it real progress? I think it's both. I think it's both. And I think that to a large extent, there's been a convergence of both. In other words, when society shifts and politics moves and everyone feels like women need to be foregrounded, women need to be in positions of power and women artists need to be recognized and African-American or artists of non-European origin need to be recognized as well and shown and collected and recruited, when that happens... Everyone starts doing it. And so, yes, in the museums, in the commercial gallery world, you may sometimes see like artists who perhaps don't deserve that kind of recognition. But that's sort of the price to pay with these pendulum swings, Mm. because as I argue in the book, this is a revolution going on. It's a revolution. And revolutions happen through pendulum swings. And you swing from one extreme to the other. And so there are, of course, people who are in, in the spotlight who perhaps don't deserve to be, if you really look at, look at it art historically. But then the pendulum at some point will swing towards the middle, we hope. Yeah. Let's talk then about art and power and religion, because, of course, there's a huge crossover there. It's so much art driven by religion. Give us your thoughts. Well, I mean, when art and religion were very bound together, and as you know, all the way through the Renaissance, and I would say until the Renaissance, all Western art pretty much was religious. I mean, you had to basically show you know, religious figures, the Virgin Mary, Jesus Christ, saints, etc. I mean, you didn't really have uh, paintings of anything, you know, any other subjects. And then the Renaissance comes along. And of course, there's a look back to, to classical Greece and antiquity. And then you are basically seeing the depiction of Greek gods and Greek goddesses. And therefore, you know, you can have Botticelli depicting Venus in the nude and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so you get all these new themes coming into art. And after, you know, maybe a century or two, you see artists depicting actual ordinary human beings, portraits. (laughs) And all of that, you know, sort of develops as art becomes more, as societies become slightly more profane and less religious and devout. And so now, how do I feel about religion and art? Well, I think that, you know, if an artist chooses to to treat that as a topic, I mean, I think that some of the most powerful works of recent years have been works that are 
pretty religious. I mean, Bill Viola, who was, um, he was basically a churchgoer as, as a child and certainly grew up in, in a church tradition, uh, he denies that anything he does has anything to do with God. But you cannot help when you go to see a Bill Viola video installation or photograph or artwork, you cannot stop yourself from thinking of God, from thinking of faith and thinking huge spiritual thoughts. And spirituality is a very important element of being human. And I'm not a religious person, but, you know, when I see those works of art, I am absolutely stirred by them. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, if artists in the 21st century uh, want to tackle religious topics, I mean, you know, more power to them, as long as there's not kind of, uh, let's say, they're not being sort of disrespectful, because then that opens a whole other can of worms of, of condemnation and, and, you know, disrespect towards religion, etc., which, yeah. Mm. Now, of course, we're seeing a lot of art activism. We're seeing demands for topple roads and so on, great, great statues being taken down. We're also seeing it, though, in climate change and people gluing themselves to, to works of art to make very real points. And I, I just wondered, is that called vandalism? How would you describe that? Yeah, I mean, of course it's called vandalism. Absolutely vandalism. And I am with you on that. I mean, we all are seeing the consequences of climate change. We feel it. You and I live in London. The weather wasn't like this here 20 years ago. I mean, it really wasn't, and even less 30 years ago. So we are seeing global warming. We're seeing, you know, the damage being done to the planet. But the issue is these paintings, they are unique and they are standalones. In other words, you don't have two of the Van Gogh sunflowers. It's not like a great book or a great movie or a great piece of music that can be replicated, reproduced, performed and heard and published, you know, from now till infinity. There's only one of these works, and they are masterworks, and they don't just belong to Holland, let's say, in the case of Van Gogh, mm. or to the National Gallery. They are the heritage of all of humanity. So just as the earth is being destroyed, the destruction of these paintings is another way in which humanity is dying. So I am absolutely very, very concerned about these actions because in the acceleration of them and the escalation of them, we might end up doing permanent damage to one of the great masterpieces of art history. And I'm really not sure that this is doing the environmentalists any good because in actual fact, as a friend of mine said on the phone the other day, I feel less sympathetic. Mm. Mm. Finally, Farah, I mean, there has been progress in, in what art and which artists are given attention today, and that's a positive. How diverse, though, is the inside of the industry? Yes, I mean, that's been another issue uh, which is being addressed now. So you're seeing much greater number of women in high positions. For instance, Maria Balshaw became the very first female director of Tate. And we have Barbara Yatta, who is the, in the history of the Vatican Museums, the very first woman director. Or uh, So there's a lot of high-profile appointments. Yeah. And I think there are appointments, you know, through the ranks, you know, going all the way down. But how entrenched is this, let's say, gender equality? And how entrenched is this move towards diversity is something that the time will tell us. But as I say in the epilogue, and I'm quoting Anne Temkin of MoMA, the genie is out of the bottle. 
Farah, this is a really readable book. We're making it sound perhaps slightly academic. It's not. It's it's a page turner. You want to see what happens. You want to explore your arguments. It's it's interesting. It's observant, and it's just really necessary at this time. So thank you for coming to talk to me about it. Thank you, Georgina, for inviting me. Farah Nayeri, Take Down Art and Power in the Digital Age, comes from Astra Publishing House. And you've been listening to Monocle Reads, thanks to our producer, Nora Hull. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or app, from SoundCloud, Mixcloud or iTunes. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>